Morning, Grace Life. It's good to see you guys this morning, and I'm glad to be, be back here. We'll be in the book of Hebrews, so if you've been with us for some time, you might be familiar where we're picking up. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, and for those of you who happen to remember the times that we've been through it, you'll remember that there's one great theme of the entire book of Hebrews, and it is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is superior to all the offices and all the heroes of the Old Testament. He is a greater prophet than Moses, a greater king than David, and a greater priest than Aaron. And this is the theme of the entire book that the author is continually developing. The preacher places all of the attractive elements of religion and puts them in contrast to the superiority of Jesus Christ. As we saw, chapter 3 began with an example of Jesus's superiority to Moses that spans nearly two chapters. In Hebrews 3, you might remember verses 1 to 6, there's established a contrast between Moses and Christ. We pointed out that Moses was a faithful servant in the Lord's house, whereas Jesus was the son of the Lord's house. And he was not only the son, he's also the architect and builder of the house. This establishes the superiority of Jesus over Moses. But that draws the author to one extremely important testing of the people under God compared with the people, are the people of God under Moses versus the people of God under Jesus Christ. And it's this, do they enter the rest? Do they trust God through the wilderness into the promised land? You see, it doesn't matter if Jesus is fundamentally superior to Moses in his person if he doesn't achieve getting his people into rest. Now, thinking about the Moses and Christ comparison moves the author to ask some questions about the house of God under Moses and the house of God under Jesus Christ. And that's where he moves into a lengthy explanation of this, which concluded in chapter 4, verse 11. And again, this is a lengthy examination of the people under Moses who did not enter God's rest and the people of Christ who do enter God's rest. That's the comparison. And what is characteristic of all of those who are under Christ's headship is that they enter rest. No child of Christ misses this rest. So it is paramount that we examine ourselves so that no one is self-deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief, but that we strive to make sure that we are in the household of Christ. Hebrews 4.11 is our immediate context. So let me read that. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. We are called as believers to enter God's promised rest. The author isn't just interested in believers' general hope of heaven or apathetic pursuit of this rest. He wants you to get it. He wants you to enter this rest. He wants you to attain the goal. When he calls you to be diligent to enter the rest, that is a call to perseverance, saying, don't start and quit halfway through the project. He's saying, I want you to finish. And that's a characteristic of all authentic Christians. They don't quit. 
He says, tremble. When you think about what it would be like to not enter this rest. He says in verse 11, strive, be diligent to enter the rest. He's saying, don't start a journey that doesn't end there in the promised land. He's saying, that's not what I want for you. That's not what I want for you. I want you to enter God's rest. He's calling us to a determination of perseverance in faith and trust until the goal has been obtained. Now, there are obstacles along the way that we all see that get in the way of us seeking that rest. There are things that come into our lives from time to time which draw our attention away from the ultimate goal. If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, he tells you of all sorts of things like that that come into the lives of believers which distract us from the ultimate goal. Sometimes it's relationships or family. Sometimes it's business or material prosperity. Sometimes it's seeking worldliness, power, influence, status. There are various things that come into our experience that distract us from the goal. The author of Hebrews knows that one of the Holy Spirit's weapons in his great arsenal for those who have a tendency to lag behind in the race is the encouragement of the body of Christ. And we've looked at that numerous times, that the encouragement of other believers is a instrument by which we can cut out indwelling sin and spur us on in the race. However, the instrument that he calls us to hear is something else entirely. It is the ultimate weapon of war against sin and to measure yourself, to see if you are actually striving to enter the rest. Let me read our text for you this morning, Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. It reads this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Our text this morning is how the means of evaluation. How do we examine ourselves to make sure our spiritual bodies don't litter the wilderness in the same way that the physical bodies of the Israelites littered the wilderness in the Exodus? What means do we utilize? What microscope can we put ourselves under in order to make sure that we don't fall short of the rest? This text is a mighty text. You've likely heard one or more sermons on it if you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time. This is a primary text for understanding the nature of Scripture. You see, this is the chief proof text of all historical confessions, whether you read the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession of 1689. This text is linked in all the great Reformed confessions. And there's a good reason for that. In fact, I'd point out that individuals who often associate themselves as Reformed, as as I do, when we do that, we are describing ourselves in a way, we are drawing lines of association and demarcation. We are pointing back to a historically faithful movement of God in redemptive history. If you're familiar with the Protestant Reformation, you recognize this was not just another movement of novelty or human ingenuity. 
or some pragmatic relational movement coming down the halls of history with a bunch of other similar movements like the seeker-sensitive movement or any of those kind of pragmatic movements that are trying to sway a culture that has always been at enmity with Christ. No. The Protestant Reformation was a, a movement by God where the Bible was rediscovered in the Christian church. Not a discovery of something new, but a rediscovery of something old. And that's why it's not called the Protestant movement, but the Protestant Reformation. Over the, over the time, the church was blinded through the greed of Rome and lost sight of the one reason it was placed on this earth, to convey a solitary message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the work of Christ alone. We call this the gospel. And so it is with anyone who has discovered the doctrines of grace, their eyes are open to the beauty and power and wonder of the truly good news. It's life-changing stuff. Now, I won't go into a seminary lecture on the intellectual developments of the European Reformation, but I will tell you this. What is most often associated with the Protestant Reformation is when a lone monk stood at um, with the authority of Christ's word against papal authority. Martin Luther stood trial by civil and religious authorities and uttered the famous words, my conscience is bound captive by the word of God. Luther believed that at the end of the day, the ultimate and final authority rested for the Christian in scripture and scripture alone. And that is why sola scriptura became known as the formal principle of the Reformation. And as the church dawned in the light of a new era, Luther had seen some amazing changes in the churches all across the world. Yet at the end of, the li at end of his life, he said this, quote, I simply taught, read, wrote, and preached God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing, end quote. He said elsewhere, quote, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it, yet I did nothing. The word did it all. The word did it all. So you see, it is in this sense that we must all be reformed or we are not even Christian. And it's merely by the grace of God that we are this way and we will continue to be this way. We cannot be a people for whom sola scriptura is merely a slogan nailed to the wall. It must be a conviction which grows out of everything else that we believe to be true. So what's the big deal about this book? Why does the author of Hebrews tell us? Why does God tell us it's the instrument to help the believer enter into God's rest? What's so special about it? Some ink, some paper, some authors, it has no magical properties. You could carry it with you everywhere you went from now until the day you die, and it would not affect you in any way. Unless you read it, it will do nothing for you. Yet, there are people all over this world, perhaps you are one of them this morning, who will stand and attest that this book has eternally altered their lives. But there are many, perhaps many, many more, sadly, who have carried this book under their arms, taken it to church every week or to prayer meetings or Bible study, perhaps read it, memorized it, for whom it will be nothing 
but a sharp sword of judgment. There's power in this book. It does not read like a textbook, yet it contains more details than if the sky were scrolls could ever contain. This book is not a novel, yet there is one theme from beginning to end. It doesn't read like a book of proverbial virtues, yet it contains right principles for living. There's something about this book that makes it unlike any other book. And the answer for that is simple. This book is the word of God. And there are three important features about this book that I wanna outline for you from our text this morning. And I would add, these are three of the most important features. So three features of God's word that without which you will not enter his rest, okay? So you wanna enter into God's rest? Lay claim of these features. Yet I would wager that most of us who have heard this text before, the gravity of this word are lost on us because we've merely looked at them stripped from their original context. And as a result, you've missed their original intention for their mere application. You've likely studied this text as a mere list of characteristics about the Bible and missed that these characteristics are what are, what are given to you like a surgeon's scalpel under a microscope to examine if you might be one who will inherit the rest. So again, let's look at these characteristics with that in mind. The author gives us some of the qualities of the word just so we will see how it is that the word of God searches us out. It's a spotlight examining and discriminating those who will enter the rest from those who will miss it. So characteristic number one, God's word reflects his nature. God's word reflects his nature. It's living. It's living. You see that in verse 12. For the word of God is living. When was the last time you heard of a living book? Now, I'm not going to going back on what I said earlier. This is not a magical book, yet it is, it is living. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a living book? How does an inanimate book contain life? How is it living? People don't speak that way very often. And, and what is very interesting is that in the Greek, the word living is placed at the very front of the sentence for emphasis. It can be translated like this. Living is the word of God. There is life in this book. The words in this book are different, not because its vocabulary can only be understood through some Gnostic mysticism or special training. No, you don't need a PhD to understand this book. All you need is a basic reading level, in fact. You don't need supreme intellect. The words are not special. By that measure, it's just an ordinary book, be it religious or otherwise. Yet the Bible possesses a spiritual animating feature that no other book possesses. And why is that the case? Because the Bible possesses a feature that is reflective of God's very essence. It's said to be living. God is living. God is he is not becoming, he is. He is aseity, as we say in theology. He is life in and of, it, of himself. And he is the source of life for all. And so it is through the vehicle of his word in written form that he brings spiritual life out of death. It's the way that the Holy Spirit operates. This word is not just a beautiful book that was written hundreds of years ago by some dead guys who who are dead and gone and really didn't know much about our culture or the way things are, nor is it even a word written by some really, you know, spiritually, you know, 
aware people thousands of years ago who just were really perceptive about the way the world would be one day. This word was written by a person who is still living and he has invested this word with a dynamic quality that causes life, spiritual life. It's not just propositional. That is, this book is not just made up of divinely inspired statements. It's personal. It's not a dead word spoken by irrelevant dead men from the past. It's a living word from one who is living and who has residence in all who believe. It is as if God himself were speaking into our ears his view of us and of truth. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The living God. The God who made heaven and earth. The living God who has made himself most, most fully known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is not an idol, some static creation that we concocted out of our imaginations and formed in our dreams. We didn't just make him up as a story to tell children to go to sleep at night. No, he is not a fairy tale or, or idol. He is alive. He is aseity, as I said before. He is life in unchangeable essence. Life is not a part of him amongst many parts. He is life. He is all of his attributes. Sometimes we call that the doctrine of divine simplicity. He is life. He doesn't possess life. You see, possessions can be added or taken away, can they not? Have you not known that to be true all your life? For example, you might possess a job now, yet there was a time when you did not have a job and there will be a day when you are no longer employed. You have possessions now or you have had some in the past that you held very closely to, be them heirlooms or family photos or whatnot, and they are gone. Possessions come and they go. There was a time in your youth when you possessed better health than you do today or you possess more wisdom today than you did when you were a youth. All that to say, possessions come and possessions go. God does not possess life. He is life. See the difference? God's perfections are what make him God. He is life. He is life and in a very different way, we possess life. What's more, he is the source of life. He is the author and giver of life. Psalm 36, verse nine, for with you is the fountain of life in your light, we see light. Your life this very morning is nothing but a gracious gift from the living God. And so his word is living. God's words often are described as being living. You see it in Acts uh, 7, 38. They are called living oracles. Moses was giving living, living oracles to pass on to his pe people. 1 Peter 1, 23, you're probably more familiar with. It says this, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. This book is not made up of static religiosity. No, like no other book, this book contains a life producing vitality. And the reason this is so is because God is its source. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
The word the New American Standard uses for inspired in the Greek is literally, literally breathed out. When we say God breathed, think about the weightiness of that. It's not that God, when the human authors were finished, just so happened to breathe on this book, giving it his blessing. No, it is the exhale of God. It is so much a byproduct of his very nature that is described to us as an exhale. It comes from God himself. Now, something I found interesting in my studies for this text is that up until this point, in a very subtle way, the author has been building a case toward this mighty text on the authority of the word of God by giving a Trinitarian affirmation of its divine authorship. Let's take a brief look at that. First, he says, the father wrote the book. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 5. Turn back there real quick. Hebrews 1 5 says this, or to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son to get today I have begotten you. We looked at that text many years ago, but who wrote those words? David did. Hundreds of years before this text in Psalm 2. And yet Hebrews 1.5 says that the father spoke these words regarding the son. The father did. He said, you are my son. These aren't merely David's words. The son is said to be the author of scripture in a similar way. Turn over to a page, Hebrews 2.11. It says this. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For this reason, he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then verse 12, it says that Jesus says the quote from Psalm 22, 22. And then verse 13, Jesus is said to have said the quote from Isaiah 8, 17. You see, Jesus is being attributed with the written word in the same manner that the Father was in Hebrews 1, 5. One more, turn over to Hebrews 3, verse 7. Hebrews 3, 7. It says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Those words came from Psalm 95, 7, and yet we are told that they come from the Holy Spirit. Do you see the trend? There's a Trinitarian formula here to validate divine authorship of Scripture. I think we could go throughout the whole book of Hebrews and we would see that again and again, that there is no hesitation that the Scriptures are of divine origin. And the author of Hebrews does this because he wants to remove any lingering vestige of doubt that might be in your mind that this is just some human book. He wants you to know deep in your bones that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. This book possesses a life-causing vitality because of its origins. And that is why I believe it is sometimes silly that we often try to defend the integrity of the Bible to unbelievers. We often use a complicated argument. We point to all the unchanged manuscripts, the prophetic statements in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. We point to the early church. We point to the countless unchanged lives that are the martyrs. And then we tell the unbeliever, come and pass judgment on the book. You should never call 
unbelievers, to reason with you, to come and stand in judgment over the living word of God as to whether it is true or false. You will never see that evangelistic technique in the New Testament. And while that is valuable information for us as believers to reinforce our convictions, it is useless to a rotten and debased mind that sits in the head of an unbeliever. In fact, we only come to believe because of the supernatural work of regeneration that took place in us by the Holy Spirit in our minds and hearts because of the book. The Bible changes lives because it is animating for the very simple reason that it is God's own word. In fact, you show that you have yet to understand the inherent vitality of God's word when you have more faith in your argumentation and persuasion ability than just simply telling them to take up and read. Spurgeon said, the Bible doesn't need our defense. It is like a lion. You must merely let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. So what does that mean for you? For one, it means you never approach this book the way you approach any other book. You aren't approaching this as a textbook to get mere facts to fill your head with enough right answers to pass a test. No, you don't approach this book as you would a novel for mere entertainment, nor, nor must you reduce God's word to your personal owner's manual. It's not like an owner's manual to a car where when something goes wrong, you just have to open it up and try to find the remedy to fix your external ailments. You don't use it like a cookbook where you just find recipes or texts that taste nice or look for inspiring or unoffensive verses to hang on your wall. No, when you pick up this book, you expect to hear God speak, to find life in its pages. And that's what we're doing when we gather here this very morning on the Lord's day. We do something that no one else in the world does. We expect something that no one else in the world expects from a merely normal book. And that's why people have packed Grace Community Church for 50 years, because there's an eagerness, a yearning, not to hear whatever clever story the pastors con you know, concocted throughout the week, but to hear the scriptures, because just maybe, just maybe, we who are dead and dying may find life. Compare that to the casualness of the day of, that we live in where most people approach worship. No one takes anything seriously. In fact, most preachers don't take it seriously nowadays. They joke around, they wanna be cool and hip. You know, they always wanna look younger. They wear the, you know, the skinny jeans or whatever. They lack gravity. That's what it is. And the casualness has a sort of trickle-down effect on its hearers, does it not? You've probably heard it said, or maybe even said it yourself, when talking to others after Sunday, you say, how was your Sunday worship? You've heard that, right? Or you've said it. How was your Sunday worship? Very different from how the Puritans would ask their congregants. They would say, how did you fare? under the preaching of God's word. How did you fare? You see, they expected to encounter a living God who would operate on their souls. Characteristic number two, the word of God is an instrument that effectually accomplishes God's purposes. We would say it's active. So first it's living, second, it's active. Energes in the Greek, it's the word from which we get the word energy. 
to be powerful, to be at work, to be effective, to accomplish something. The word of God is effectual. It is energy. It is active. And what does the author mean by that? Again, I believe this reflects the very character of God. God is an active God. He isn't passive. We call this pure actuality in theology. By that, we mean that there is no passive potency in God. Nothing catches God by surprise. He is active and effectual, and so is his word. It is active in the sense that the word of God speeds to accomplish the purpose for which it was uttered. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. God does not send his word out without it accomplishing what he has sent it to do. It does not return to him void. His word is not an empty word. What he speaks happens. Now, we all know those kinds of people who say one thing and do another altogether, do we not? Those duplicitous people, two-faced, fork-tongued, they never put their money where their mouth is. They talk a big game until it comes to costing them something. When the time comes, when the battle is being waged, where are they? Nowhere to be found. It's part of the inconsistency of a fallen human being that people often separate their actions from their words. But God is nothing like this. He is the opposite. His speaking is his doing. He is pure act. He is not potential. He is not the kind of God who may be for you or may be against you. He is either for you or against you with 100% of his being. And that is a sobering thought. As he speaks, so he is. When the Bible speaks of God, it often speaks of him in this manner, that when he speaks at the very same moment, his actions are accomplished by his purpose. His words purposely, perfectly accomplish what he intends. Think about creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, the sun and stars came into being. Genesis 1, 3, God said, let there be light. And the result was inevitable. It's very telling about the character of God. His word carries with it the necessary vitality to accomplish all his intentions. He doesn't have to woo the light into existence or hope really hard that it'll happen. He just has to speak, and it is. This is true of all things. He says in Hebrews 1.3, he created the world. He sustains by his word. His word is the instrument of the new birth. You didn't cause your own salvation. It's a monergistic work according to his word. It is the constant in all things, the word of God. We are born again by his word. That's what James 1.18, James 1.18, it says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Whether it be creation, sustaining governance, as we saw in Hebrews 1.3, and recreation, James 1.18, they're all works of his word. 
He even sanctifies us by his word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He's the agent of creation, of governing, of regeneration and sanctification. Now, I don't want you to be confused at this point. The word of God is not God. What do I mean by that? What I mean is we do not worship a fourth member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, Word. That's not what I'm advocating at all, okay? Let me give you one example. That is why two people can hear the Word preached, the gospel presented, perhaps even here and now, and only one of them be brought to faith in Jesus Christ and the other hardened in unbelief. The difference is not in the inherent efficacy of the instrument, the Word, but only in the sovereign employment of it by the will of God. See the difference? The word is the sword of the spirit. He is the agent. The word is the instrument. So do not confuse those two. Agent, instrument. But make no mistake, whether a man believes the gospel and is saved or rejects it and is damned, make no mistake, beloved, God's word is actively accomplishing his purpose either for life or condemnation. To some, we are aroma of life unto life. To others, an aroma of death unto death. God has given us a ministry of life and of condemnation to some. So what is the practical implication of these eternal realities? Our confidence for kingdom work must be placed in the book. It is God's instrument. And if we try to minister without this book, we are useless. Like a surgeon trying to perform heart surgery without an instrument of precision, it is ineffectual. And if you try to do ministry contrary to the book, you will leave the patient a corpse. It'd be like doing brain surgery with a sledgehammer. It doesn't matter what your ministry is. If it's your ministry in the home, if it's what you teach your children, if it's how you lead your Bible study or counsel people or serve others in a more practical way, you must be concerned with doing kingdom work according to the instrument of the kingdom. The book is the effectual instrument. We don't know what the results will be, but with the word of God on our tongues, we know God's will accomplish all of his good pleasure through it. And that's why I oftentimes say to seminary students that it's better for an Arminian to just read the Bible than to preach contrary to it. Nothing upsets me more than when people play fast and loose with the word of God. And that is why nothing makes my blood boil more than a mishandling of God's word. Nothing is more loathsome and more abhorrent. Let me not get on a tangent there. When we minister with God's word, we can go into any situation and know that God's purpose is always being accomplished perfectly through the instrumentality of his word. And I would say God... God's intended purpose is never frustrated. It accomplishes its good pleasure to save, to condemn, to sanctify, or to make men more guilty. I've been alluding to that, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. Let me read that. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So to the one an aroma from death to death and the other an aroma of life to life. God's word does both. It softens the heart for some under repentance and it hardens others. 
The same sun that melts the, the wax hardens the clay, yet it accomplishes all his pleasure. To some, it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But to others, it is the chief cornerstone of our faith. So when you go to do the work of the ministry, your confidence rests not in your particular gifts, your ingenuity, your planning, or because you spent hours praying beforehand. No, because the word always effectually accomplishes God's purpose. That's where your confidence rests, always. And so we have an expectation, a confidence, and a hope that God's work is accomplishing through the preaching of his word. Now, is that true of your expectations when you come under the preaching of God's word? What do you expect when you sit under God's word? Or do you just show up? God's word is a reflection of his nature. It's alive. It's active. It accomplishes his purposes. And third, I would say the word of God is comprehensively and irresistibly penetrating. It's powerful and penetrating. Hebrews 4.12, let me read it again. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice, it is a sharp sword. It is penetrating. It is cutting. It probes our inmost being. It cuts and pierces into the depths of the heart. Calvin and some of the early church fathers referred to the heart of man as labyrinths, as mazes. Our hearts are a maze even to us. Even when you look at them, you can't quite figure them out, even your own intentions. But God's word can sort it out. It can penetrate and understand and analyze. It cuts and pierces the depths of the soul. It unravels mystery. The word of God is sharp. It is able to penetrate, analyze, and to discern. You need to study this book because God's people need to be holy. And that means that they need to examine their own hearts. You need to know what kind of indwelling sin you have in your heart so that you can pray to the Lord to help you deal with it so that God's Holy Spirit will make you aware of those issues that you have to wrestle with. And when you read how it penetrates, as it says in our text, you need to prepare for the knife. And sometimes, perhaps more times than not, if you read this book, you'll have to read it through tears because it's going to tell you just as you are. It's going to discern things about your heart that you have suppressed and haven't wanted to think about for a long time. The Bible is just like that. If you read this book, it will discern things about you. You've heard it said, you don't read this book, it reads you. How could those men who lived hundreds, thousands of years ago be so accurate in describing me? Because their words were God's words. And God made me and he knows what I'm like. And so his book is incredible. It has an ability to penetrate and to probe our inmost thoughts because the one who has made you is the one who wrote the book. In this passage, in verse 12, it says that the word is not only living, it's not only active, it's not only sharp, but it's discerning. 
It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions. It's able to analyze, criticize, approve, and disapprove that which we do, that which we think, that which we desire. It is able to sort all of you out. The point of the author is that in light of the fact that the word of God is living and active and sharp and discerning, you cannot ignore it. You can't say, oh, well, I'll take it and leave it. It's a nice book, but I'm kind of indifferent towards it. The word of God has spoken to us and therefore you have two choices. You either obey or you disobey like all of those who were littered in the wilderness. That's why he has verse 12 here, like he does. He is warning us. He wants us to diligently seek to enter the rest. And if you're going to do that, you can't ignore the word of God. It's the greatest tester of men's hearts. Then he goes on and he speaks about the one who is behind the word of God, and that is God. He says, we ought to be diligent because the word of God can search us out. The word of God knows where our hearts are. Our friends may see us as church-going religious people, even though we are empty in our hearts in terms of our thoughts with God. He's saying the word of God can sort it all out. The word of God knows what you are like on the inside. When you read this, you'll notice it says a double-edged sword. And that might seem like a common thing to you. When I talk about a sword, you likely think of a medieval broadsword that was sharp on both sides and filed to a point. However, at this time, that wasn't necessarily a common thing. Most swords were only sharp on one side and on the back they were flat, similar to a kitchen knife like you have at home or a samurai sword that you've seen in a museum. Only one side of your kitchen knife is sharp and the other side is flat and dull. That was the common sword. But the two-edged sword is where the sword is sharp on both sides. Now, God's word is not merely a double-edged sword. It is said to be sharper and more penetrating than a two-edged sword. Furthermore, I would add the, uh, the physiology here, joints and marrow, soul and spirit are not intended to be used by the author to explain our metaphysical makeup. This isn't a text supporting dichotomy or trichotomy. It's not about the metaphysical makeup of mankind. His point is to tell you that there is no aspect of the human constitution that can escape the penetrating power of the word of God. He gets right to the center of human selfhood, the heart, not the vital organ, but the vitality of your very existence, your thought, attitudes, with unerring discrimination, he severs down to the core of who you are. And that is a frightening thing to think about. Your thoughts, attitudes, feelings are the most inaccessible part of who you are. They're in the deepest part of your being that no human instrument can dissect them. No human instrument can even detect them. Yet God's word severs as their inerrant critic it passes judgment on all of them. And to show you how comprehensive this is, the author of the book explains it to us in Hebrews 4.13. So he leaves behind the metaphor of the sharp sword and he speaks to you in simple talk. Hebrews 4.13, let me read it. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I love that language. God knows what you are like. He is watching. 
The eyes of God search us out because God is behind the word itself. It is his word. We are told that he sees and he knows everything and everyone. It's a frightening phrase if one is hiding unrighteousness. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. If you have nothing to hide, that's not frightening. To be laid bare, that's not frightening if you are perfectly righteous. But if you are unrighteous, it is the most terrifying thought for everybody in the world to know what you have done and what you have thought in your heart. So the author goes on to say that we must give an account to him because he is the one with whom we have to do. It's an incredible phrase talking about God. He doesn't just say because he's God. He says he is the one with whom we have to do. I think the phrase emphasizes that whether a person goes through life indifferent towards God or not, we're all going to have to do business with God someday or later. Better do it sooner. He is the one with whom we have to do. You must give an account. Every single detail of who you are, what you do, how you think, how you feel and live is altogether naked before the gaze of the living God. Every thought, every whim, every internal motivation, every attitude, every lust, every selfishness, every laziness, every hatred, every arrogance, every feeling of revenge, every sense of superiority in your attractiveness, your talents, your intelligence, your success, your influence, you're a better teacher, or a better parent, or a better athlete, or a better Christian. Every nuance of every feeling, every crook and cranny of your heart is altogether exposed to the omniscience and omnipresence of God. The all-seeing eye of divine judgment. You are exposed to the God to whom you will one day give an account for it all. There is no hidden cavity, no dark recess for you to hide. God sees everything there is to see. And how does that make you feel? If there is any sense about you this morning, this ought to frighten you to your core. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. This is a frightening statement. And as you sit here, you should feel as if God just pulled up a seat next to you and whispered in your ear, this is all about you. Nothing else this morning, no one else this morning matters. You have a one on whom you have to deal with, the high king of heaven. You have a one-on-one -on -one with him and you should be left with a thought that you are no good. Romans 3.11. That's the result of the penetrating word. But do you realize that the final expression of this will take place on the final day, the great day of judgment? Have you ever considered how comprehensive God's judgments will be when you stand before him on that great day? Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praises will come to him from God. Your secrets, motivations, everything hidden that no one else on this planet knows about you, the kinds of things that you are scared, that if anyone else knew about, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. And what is the instrumentality by which we will be judged? John 12, 48 says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who will judge him. The word I spoke, 
is what will judge him on the last day. Now, all the things that we've seen are generally true about God's word. It is alive, it is active, it is penetrating. However, remember this verse is not a generic explanation of God's word, but something very specific in particular. He has told us all these things about God's word to frighten us, to show us what to expect if we refuse to believe him and we are disobedient like all those who died in the wilderness. He speaks of the word as a double-edged sword. It's lethal. And the illustration that makes this clear is that those who wandered in the wilderness heard the word of God as clearly as it could be heard. And not only were they barred from the land of rest, but their bodies filled the wilderness and most of their souls ended up in hell. And yet 500 years after that, in David's time, he takes up the same concern with his people. In Israel, once again, he says, don't harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, don't harden yourselves. He says, remember what happened? He's pointing to them, reminding them of the awful things that befell those who hardened themselves to the word of God and died in the wilderness. And then some thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews is issuing the same warning to the first century church. And I'm warning you here today, don't turn away from Jesus Christ. If you've heard the gospel, don't come up short. Don't find yourself like the wilderness wanderers missing out on the rest. The failure they experienced is nothing compared to failing to experience heavenly rest. Look back at verse 11. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest. By any means necessary, let us strive to enter the rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. You need to be judgment day sure, beloved, for the word of God is living, active, sharper than any sword, this word is penetrating and exposing instrument that you need to see if you're going to get to enter God's rest. And there's a way to test whether you will enter the rest to assure you that you will enter the rest. You sit under the soul transforming, penetrating word of God. You're either laid bare now, today or later. And that's our hope this morning that we will not face that day in dread, that the sword of God's judgment has been plunged into the heart of Jesus Christ in our stead, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died in the stead of sinners, that he was bruised, raised from the dead bodily and ascended into heaven, and there he sits to make intercession, and that this Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead by the sword of his word. Have you heard that Jesus alone gives the gift of eternal life, that he provides his own human righteousness as a fulfillment of the law on behalf of all those who believe and trust in him? And so when this word judges you, it finds Christ's perfect merit to fulfill all of its demands in your place. He takes your demerit and gives you his merit, which he earned as a man on this earth, living sinlessly and fulfilling God's law on behalf of those who believe. By his living and by his dying, you can stand under the scrutiny of the sharp sword of the Lord. If you've heard the message, don't harden yourself in unresponsiveness, lest the instrument of life become the weapon of death. We live in a world that is obsessed with looking good on the outside, even if we're no good on the inside. 
We live in a world that is obsessed with perception rather than reality. But if you want to enter the rest, you have to have a new nature, not just a new appearance. What is your only hope? That this is true of you. Our only hope is that there is something sharp enough and powerful enough to penetrate through all the deception and shed light on your thoughts and intentions. And that's what our text is all about in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. The word of God is the exposing instrument. The good news of God's promises and of his warnings of his judgments are sharp enough and living enough and active enough to penetrate to the bottom of your heart and show you who you truly are. And I'll end with this from Spurgeon. He said, quote, since this book is meant to be a discerner or critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart, let the book criticize us. If the word of God approves you, you are approved. If the word of God disapproves you, you are disapproved. Have friends praised you? They may be your enemies in doing so. Have other observers abused you? They may be right. They may be wrong. Let the book decide. Cling to the living word. Let the gospel of the martyrs, let the gospel of the reformers, let the gospel of the blood-washed multitudes before the throne of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ be your gospel and none but that. And it will save you and make you the means of saving others to the praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are our strength and defense. You are our salvation. Light of light, Lord of lords, God of this world and the next, we give you thanks for the promise of this day, for even the challenges of this day, for the blessing of this day. We exalt you, King of the universe. You spoke and the universe burst into existence. This world is yours, planned in eternity, created in a moment of sheer power, and it is permeated with love and well-made. There is glory with each sunrise, Lord. The beauty of the earth outpours praise and testifies to your benevolence and magnificence. Thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity of worship, for the freedom to be amongst your family and your body. Thank you that in worship, we can put aside the uncertainties of this world and rest upon the certainties of the kingdom for your promises are not changeable, but immovable and eternal. Thank you that we can bring to your feet all the hurts and fears that trouble us and leave them there, knowing that your strength and assurance are all that we need for sustenance. And as we come to you this morning, we find ourselves beneath the Redeemer's cross, where healing streams continually descend, where balm is poured into every wound, where we come to wash anew in the all-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ assured that you see in us no spots of sin, but only the righteousness of our federal head, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.